0: and welcome to episode 45 of the creative writers tool belt today's episode is an interview with the editor and agent julie crisp and i know i say this about all of my interviews but i really did have a great time talking to julie and i learned an awful lot listening to what she has to say and i think you will do as well there's some really excellent advice for all us writers but first of all i'd like to ask you a question are you ready to really get to grips with the skills you need to be a writer Maybe you want to write the story of your life or the story of someone close to you. If you've been thinking about all this for a while now, I'd like to invite you to take the next step and make a commitment to your writing. Join me and a team of writing tutors and professionals from the publishing industry for a week of focused teaching, coaching and individual feedback. The Art of Story is a one week residential course in the Lake District in Cumbria. Running from the 9th to the 13th of November, the course will build your skills through teaching across a range of topics, from generating story ideas, to story structure, from understanding how to create intriguing and believable characters, through to learning about setting and how voice works. You'll also benefit from individual feedback on your work from the resident tutors. The course runs from Monday afternoon to Friday morning, includes accommodation, breakfast and lunch, and the cost is £350 for the week. But if you are new to our Lakes courses and you're a subscriber to the Creative Writers Toolbelt, you can get a 10% discount on this price by quoting the code CWT10 on your application form. Now, this offer applies to anyone who books for the whole week, gets their application form to us by October 30th, and has never been on one of our Lakes courses before. If you're interested and you want more information, go to the First Page Courses website, that's firstpagecourses.com, or you can email me, andrew at andrewjchamberlain.com. Remember to quote the offer code CWT10 on your application form. I look forward to seeing you there. So here's my interview with Julie. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to another interview episode of
1: the Creative Writers Tool Belt. My guest today is the literary agent, script doctor and freelance editor, Julie Crisp. And Julie has over 15 years of experience as an editor across three major publishing houses, working with commercial titles in fiction, non-fiction and children's books, and she's worked over here in the UK and in Australia. And most recently, she headed up the UK arm of Tor, a brand which will be very familiar to those of you who are science fiction and fantasy fans. And she's now working as a freelance consultant and script doctor. Julie, you've worked with some of my favourite authors, actually, including China Miéville, Peter Ham- F. Hamilton, Neil Asher. So um, it's a real treat for me to have a chance to have a conversation with you. And uh, thank you for your time, and welcome to the Creative Writers Tool Belt.
2: Thank you, and I'm, I'm very glad that I've worked on authors that you uh, you enjoy.
1: I mean, I think they're, they're brilliant, and I will, I'm going to have to deliberately not get into conversation with you about, about some of those guys, because we'll end up just talking about their work for an hour, and, and <laughs> I want to concentrate on the, the questions I've got here. So just to start off then... Um, so, Julie, I mentioned that you've got over 15 years' experience as an editor in some major publishing houses. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the authors that you've worked with and uh, who they are and what, what did you enjoy about working with them?
2: Yeah, I mean, I've, I've worked with a, a variety of authors. So, um, in Australia, I worked with, um, obviously, a lot of homegrown authors, a lot of Australian sure. authors, and, and that was predominantly uh, what I would call desk editing. So, that was actually just doing concentrating on the editorial Process rather than the sort of publishing side of things. Okay. So I didn't have as much direct contact with the authors over there as I did when I then came back to the UK and started working um, at Pan Macmillan in the UK. And when I first started there, I was working for their crime and thriller list. So I worked with authors like uh, Rupert Faruqi, who was writing sort of upper-class women's fiction. And then I transferred over to the tallest the seven years ago and started working on some of the authors that I'd been reading as a fan. So uh, that was obviously hugely exciting to be able to to work with them on their on their novels from a, a very early sure. stage. And that was yeah, as you mentioned, um, Charlie Able, Peter Hamilton, Neil Asher, and then I took on I took on John Gwynn, sharon Newton. I worked with Paul Cornell. I mean, Seth Patrick. Yeah, there's a whole. Thing.
1: Certainly is, isn't there? Yeah, so some, some fantastic authors there. Now, what drew you to science fiction and fantasy as a genre? It sounds like you were already a fan anyway of those of those genres. What drew you to them?
2: I think it, well, it was my dad's fault. To start. <laughs> it usually is. There's usually a bookshelf somewhere in your family yes. home which has got the, the the sort of the prerequisite books that you should you should be reading. And I mean, I've loved reading ever since I was uh, ever since I was a child. And it was Stephen King's It that I read, and I was about ten, and I put right. this thing on my dad's shelf, and it was 1980s cover with the um with the, the, the clown's eyes peering out from the storm drain and this book equally terrified me and enthralled me at the same time so I snuck it off my dad's shelf I read it in about two or three days I had nightmares for about three months afterwards my mum was incredibly <laughs> unimpressed with him but but it, it really did set me on the path then to reading I, I read more horror, read a lot of James Herbert Um, I got into Frank Herbert and all the, you know, all the Dune books and then I discovered that the, the more sort of the female side of things I got into, Anne McCaffrey and Anne yeah, exactly. Rice and Catherine Kerr, and, and I just adored it. For me, it was it was the perfect form of escapism. Um, you know, what other books in in sort of fiction can give you that that ultimate form of escapism and you literally to another world it's
1: curious how often i think when, when i talk to people when they speak about what they read as a child it is escaping that is is the thing that they want to do it's or, or you know in a very positive way escaping into another world being someone just being absorbed and immersed in the characters and the setting in, in whatever it is that they're reading that seems to be a very strong pull particularly for uh, younger readers
2: and, and I think that's why not only genre books have been so popular, but, I mean, if you look at the TV and the films, and you look at Doctor Who, for example, uh, I mean, that has just sort of reawakened a love in this particular generation which we hadn't seen for quite a while and you know I mean I used to watch it as a child I think my first crush was Peter Davison which is kind of embarrassing <laughs> you know everyone else loved New Kids on the Block and no I, I, I loved Doctor Who um, but I think I think that's absolutely fabulous that these guys are reinventing genre for a new generation um, Yeah. Good to see.
1: And speaking of like new things, obviously, a lot of the people I talk to are the brand new writers or the aspiring writers. Some of them are self publishing, some of them want to get a commercial contract. So, I want to just ask you, with all of your experience, two or three questions. I guess the first one is if I am an aspiring writer and I've got a little bit of budget to spend on editorial or to spend on improving my manuscript, from your perspective, where should I be spending my money?
2: It's difficult because it depends on what the manuscript is like, obviously. You've got to have, I I would think sort of having beta readers who can give you genuine and realistic feedback rather than your mum who will tell you she loves it. (laughs) She's just so proud of you. Um, That's quite useful feedback as an initial um, sort of a step into it. But then if you really want somebody to literally tear your work to shreds and put it back together again, you're going to be looking at a structural editor. So that's somebody who can look at uh, not just the plot and and the overall picture, but look at the characters and details, look at the timelines, look and see whether there are certain sub-threads that are working and others that aren't. Mm. And they can pair bits back and they'll cut and they will shape. And, I I mean, it's really like topiary. and <laughs> you go in there with your hedge cutters and you, you trim out the bits that aren't needed and, and put it into um a shape hopefully that will fit the commercial marketplace so yeah i'd say that's probably your first step in terms of editing
1: okay and it sounds like you have to kind of brace yourself if you are on the authorial side of this you've got to brace yourself for somebody with their, your best intentions at heart to come along and just dismantle your script and, and as you say rip it apart for the best of reasons and to help you so you've got to it's just like you've got to be of mind to not worry about that and just absorb the the lessons to be learned?
2: You have I mean uh, your your editor should not be rewriting your book for you they can certainly suggest line reworks if there are things that aren't quite working in the line structure you know they can certainly suggest reworking a line in a different way but at the end of the day you know you would expect to go back in and say as an author well actually that's not working for me how about we do it this way instead and the way that I use used to edit, and actually I I still do edit, is I pose a lot of questions. So I would say probably 90% of my editorial notes would be, is this clear enough? Should we be doing it this way? Have you considered that the reader might not get this? Do we need to clarify it? And so it's just trying to get the author to see the trees for the wood almost because they get so close to it. It's it's very difficult sometimes to sort of refresh that perspective after you've been working on it for so long. I guess one
1: one of the real benefits of having a seasoned second opinion is that that person isn't in the thick of it and can take a, bit, a better view of what's going on. And Now, um, when you were a commissioning editor, when a story crossed your desk, what made you continue to read it rather than just toss it into the rejection pile?
2: There, was, there were several different things. So, I mean, it's, it's the same sort of thing I look for in submissions now as an agent. As, it has to be different. It has to capture my attention. The writing plays a big part of that. So I'm not saying... And it has to be sort of, you know, literary of winner style prose, but, you know, well written and engaging. And it has to have heart. I really want a story that picks me up and uh, transports me into it. You know, I get so much that comes in that it really has to have that hook for me to make me to want it to read it any further.
1: And do you think that is, um, that is about character or voice or theme or, 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 or plot or is it all, all is it, could it be any one of those things?
2: It could be any one of those things, and it could be all of those things together. I mean, it's it's so subjective because you know what what I may absolutely adore, another agent may hate. Right. What I would pick up and recommend as a reader, another reader may turn their nose up and say, "What what no, I will only read this instead." So, I mean, we all read and we all love different things, and I, I think that does come into play when you're when you're looking for books to commission or or acquire.
1: Okay, and. In amongst all of those, those different issues, though, do you, are there perhaps two or three issues that you've seen both in your role now as a freelance person and, and, and when you were working for the publishing house? Are there like two or three issues perhaps that new writers keep falling over on? Are there, are there things which new writers need to really pay attention to because it's, it's like a perennial problem for them?
2: I think they, they do need to ensure that there are no grammatical mistakes in it because, I mean, that is off-putting. If you are starting to read something and as an editor something just jumps out at you, which is a very sort of easy spelling mistake, I mean, you can disregard one or two, but if it's consistent, yeah. you do start to wonder whether the author can actually write. So I would say, yeah, I mean, obviously most most writers would sort of look for that anyway. Um Not falling into stereotype is another thing. I think, you know, try and write something that's your own, that you have invested in, rather than copying what you think will sell. Now,
1: recently I spoke to uh, Lee Harris. I don't know whether you've met Lee or you know Lee. I mean very well. <laughs> ah, okay, so now I asked him what the most important thing that he was looking for in a piece of writing, and this is this is specifically as a commissioning editor. Um, and interestingly, he said voice, which actually spun us into a, a, quite a big mm. conversation about voice because I'd never thought of voice as very important before. So would you kind of agree with that
2: I think it's key. There's no doubt at all. It it, it is key because you are you're with that author on their on that voyage. So if you can't engage with that voice that they have written in, you're that's it. I mean, you're you're out from basic page one. So you you do need to have that, that empathy. I love something that reaches to me as a reader, sort of straight away, picks me up, transports me, makes me think. I have to have this. That's how commissioning editors get actually about the authors that they take on. I mean, there's real highs and lows in terms of publishing, and if you don't get the specific author you want because someone else has swept in and grabbed it from you, then you're you're devastated. Mm. yeah, there's a lot of passion involved in publishing
1: <laughs> you could take it quite personally,
2: yeah, it's that it's that emotion yeah. it's that um and it's it's basically Basically, the feeling you get when you are so swept away with something and you are so excited is that page-turning factor would be another way to describe it. So you cannot physically put that book down, and that that's happened quite a, quite a few times when I've been commissioning, and, and an entire day has gone past with me just being completely engrossed in this 800-page manuscript, and then looking up at the end of the day thinking, where the hell did the day go? You know, <laughs> um, but that's what that. That's what I want. I want something to just sort of grab grab me and make sure that I don't lose interest.
1: Yeah. Um, I have to ask this, and you may not be able to answer this because it's a, it's an impossible question, but how do you do that? As a writer, how do you do that? What have you got to pay attention to to capture your editor so that you, they can't escape?
2: I think part of it is being completely invested and passionate about what you're writing because if that transfers itself onto the page, I, I think that something in that that you know other readers can pick up on i think if you're writing sort of quite dispassionately about something that is also um you know something that will actually sort of come across on the page and and you'll you'll pick up on that i think yeah i mean most authors of course are going to be completely invested in their work
1: and again thinking about the author editor relationship some if if an author is is fortunate enough to get a, a contract and they're then working with an editor what can an author do to make things easy for the editor, what is it? What is it that the editor needs from an author, and, and conversely, what 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 are you hoping an author will not do? What's what's going to make things hard?
2: <laughs> oh, <laughs> well, I mean, it, no, I mean it has to be a, a sort of an, an equally respectful relationship between an author and an editor, and, and thankfully, I'm, I haven't touchwood, yet um, worked with an author that I didn't genuinely get on with. And, and it's just all worked out very well. I think what editors are looking for, again, is someone who's invested in their work, someone who is going to try to understand the complications involved in publishing. Because you are one of sort of 20 authors that that editor might be dealing with, they're not necessarily going to be able to get back to you as soon as you phone them. There are so many other things going on in the, in the publishing world so you are you know, incredibly important to them and they do want to get your book out there and do as well with it as they possibly can. There are other factors involved. So
1: if there's patience and respect and bear with your editor and...
2: Yeah, I mean obviously if they've not got back to you within two or three days you have every right to change them. Okay? Excuse <laughs> me, I'm still here. But I think authors do have to try and sell their own books as much as the publishers. So they need to be socially media aware, savvy.
1: Absolutely, yeah, yeah.
2: They need to be engaged with their readership, but not necessarily too engaged. And they, need to, they do need to be aware that obviously whatever goes out on social media stays on social media. So they, you know, I, I remember in um, Macmillan, they actually did social media training for authors if they wanted it, because I think in this day and age, you do have to have almost your author persona, which goes out there. And and your personal persona. So sometimes the two sort of uh, are fine, I mean you can do your social media as you would normally. But I think other times, you know, sort of certain opinions might set people off, or I'm a little too sort of enthusiastic about joining in a in a discussion. I think in those cases it's always wise to sort of take a step back and yeah,
1: think sure.
2: okay well what is this going to do for the fan base yeah yeah
1: i can i can actually imagine that that a lot of authors have to just they can hear the wise words in their head saying don't react to that post don't don't press the send button just just don't say it whatever it is at the moment don't because it'll come back to haunt you
2: it's incredibly difficult, though, because, yeah. and, and even for editors as well, I mean, we're sat there sometimes biting our tongues going, oh, if I could just get on there and say exactly what I think. And we do. We're human. But if, at the end of the day, you, yeah, I mean, that's, it's just basically going to, at times, feed the trolls and yeah, <laughs> Okay, so it's just not
1: worth it. Now in one of my recent podcasts I did a piece around what, what are the essential qualities of a writer and quite often when I'm interviewing somebody I'll ask them but especially if they are from the world of publishing what do they think are the essential qualities of a writer and I normally pick three I mean my three were perseverance, humility and imagination and I wondered if you had a kind of sort of three what are the three qualities that you think an author needs to have?
2: Yeah, I mean, it would be very similar. Actually, the dedication I think um, would be would be one, and that's dedication to sort of the craft and the publishing process, the books in general, innovativeness. I think, would be another, which is kind of similar to imagination, but probably takes it a step beyond as well. You do have to come up with new ideas and new concepts about how to write the books, how to sell the books, what's the, what is the marketplace doing, do I need to react to it. These are all considerations that an author should be having, as well as the editor and as well as the publisher. And I think, again, yeah, patience and, and just sort of an an understanding that, you know, it may all happen overnight and that's fantastic when it does but more often than not it tends to take quite a while to sort of build attraction I've got a
1: couple of friends who are editors and one of them particularly is often complains to me about the fact that in days gone by the editor found a book and liked the book and was able to present the book and it was it would be published but now i don't know whether this is your experience but if you find the book that you when, when you were in the publishing house that you loved and you really believed in, you would then have to get it through a whole series of meetings, not just editorial meetings, but you'd have to persuade your sales guys, you'd have to persuade the marketing people, you'd have to persuade the whole constituency of people before it would see the light of day. And the author has to almost be as engaged as a marketer and a salesperson for their book as they do a, a writer. Is that—is that your experience? Would you agree with that?
2: Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, I, I think it's actually more important these days is actually that the sales and the marketing people and the PR people are on board from an early stage because they're going to be so heavily involved in the book and what happens with it. I think having enthusiasts from a very early stage is actually no bad thing. It's always better to have a lot of people shouting enthusiastically than one lone wolf howling in the wind or howling at the moon. Um, So so I I never had an issue with actually getting, getting people to sort of read and be enthusiastic about things. I don't think the author necessarily needs to be involved in that stage of it, but they certainly do when it comes to sort of pre publication awareness and um, and marketing and PR uh, once the book is published because they need to be as involved in in selling it and selling themselves as a brand as the publishers are you know i mean the publishers can only do so much we can do a little bit of advertising they can do a bit of advertising they can do a bit of sort of social media but if it's the author out there and i'm not saying you know the author should be out there banging away saying read my book read my book it's great because that's not the way to do it but if they can socially engage their audience and have them on board from an early stage then they are more likely to win readers that way so
1: it's kind of whether you like it or not perhaps as an author You've, you've got to get with social media, so are you on Facebook, Twitter, and um, if the publisher says you need, you know, it'd be great if you could go and speak here or do this, that you've just got to, it's good to react to that positively and get,
2: yeah, get involved. Yeah, yeah, I mean, definitely. I mean, obviously, there. Are, if there are things that the, you, you know, sort of feel uncomfortable with, if they ask you to... Dressed up as a pineapple, and there are no pineapples in your books, and you're wondering why the hell they're asking, yeah. Then it's probably wise to just query it, but they're unlikely to do that. So I mean, you know, they will—they will always try and pitch ideas to you and pitch events to you that you should be perfectly comfortable in doing. Okay.
1: I mean, that makes sense. I guess everybody starts with a kind of, yeah, or should start with an attitude of, I'm going to do what I can. I'm going to respond to what I'm asked to do. I'm going to kind of get with it. I mean, that that's what I would think. You know, I, I'm the author. This is my book. These people are publishing it. I'm going to work with them and get stuck into it.
2: Well that's exactly it I mean at the end of the day it's a team effort you know I mean everybody is in in the same boat that they want the book to work they want the author to work so yeah they're all they're all heading for the same goal okay so
1: I want to come back a little bit more to the kind of writing process now uh, recently I got a bit involved in a bit of a debate around planners versus pantsers or planners versus people who just kind of splurge it all out in one go do you think there is do you think this is just purely a matter of personal choice or uh, are there some guidelines that you would advise people when they when they're coming to write?
2: I would never try and teach somebody to write. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I, I think everybody has their own way of doing it. I know um, several authors who sit down. Um, Peter of Hamilton, I think it's probably his notes for his books are probably as long as the books themselves. I mean, he has a lot of planning and a lot of research and, and draws a copious amount of notes to refer to when he's writing his books. I know other authors who basically sit down and start writing and just see where it takes them. So I, I think, it's a, again, it's a very subjective Thing. And I don't think there's any right or wrong way of writing, as long as you are writing.
1: So there are some people who, they can just sit down and, and all right, they, it'll be a bit of a first draft, but they will just produce something with the minim, most minimal amount of planning and, and forethought.
2: Yep, they will, they will just be able to sort of sit down and write, and they won't have made any sort of uh, defined ideas about what the characters are going to do or where the characters are going to go. They'll see where those characters take them. And they may well revise them at a second stage and do something slightly different with them. But forgetting the the sort of the words on the paper to start off with, that's that's just what works for them.
1: And kind of connected to that, again, I've had debate with people about when you're writing your first draft, uh, most people I talk to, they say, you don't really get you don't really want editorial advice, you don't really want too much editorial input when you're first draft, you just get into it and you power through it and you finish it. You don't want to kinda of stop stop start all the time. Other people want to see people say, No, you it's good to get a little bit of advice as you go. do you have a, a view on this? What do you what do you think writers should do?
2: Well, this is why I would never ever be able to write, because I would go back and re edit that first chapter until there was nothing left. <laughs> so I I would say actually the most important thing is just to get it done to you know just to power through because if you do keep going back and changing things and asking for people's opinions and changing things again you will get a hundred different opinions if you ask a hundred different people so you know that is not going to help the creative process what you need is to have something that is completely finished that you can give to people and then you can cherry. The feedback that they give you, but having just a chapter and sort of sending it to someone to read, they you, you're just going to get numerous and confusing messages. So I think no, it's definitely better just to plough on, get the words on to the paper, and then and then go back and redraft however many times you need to afterwards. Okay,
1: a lot of writers talk about the the, the point in the story where they struggle is that kind of difficult middle stage. I've I've heard a number of people say you know they get thirty forty thousand words in if they're writing a novel and the whole thing just kind of seems to grind to a halt, and it's just hard work to push through. How, how do you think a writer can keep the momentum going in, in the middle of this story where there's this kind of risk that things can sag a little bit?
2: I think probably the best thing to do is just take a step back from it all. Um, you know, if you've been powering through for that many words, and you've got as far as you have, and you are just stumped about what happens next, just take a couple of days, try not to think too much about it and then get a fresh perspective on it when you come back. If you're still stumped, then, you know, it might be worth thinking about something different, putting down some ideas that you've had for scenes previously that maybe you haven't sort of covered and see if that generates any idea and gets the motion sort of going again.
1: Okay. So if I want to come to you and get your help, what what – what kind of stage should I be at if I want to come and, and get the kind of help that you can give me?
2: I would say have the entire thing drafted. I mean, some people have approached me and just asked me to sort of edit the first three or four chapters because they want to have it, you know, sort of submission ready for for agents. I can do that as long as I have a full synopsis, so I know where the story's going. I can offer pointers. I think I, I think just sort of having something halfway through with the author not having any idea of how it finishes either, would be quite tricky to sort of offer feedback on. And
1: would slightly go against the grain compared to what you said a few minutes ago, where, where perhaps, you know, if you've started on a, your first draft, you just need to power through and get get the thing done.
2: And I mean, and, and agents will want to see a complete script yeah. anyway. They're certainly not going to be interested if you say, I've just started writing this book and I've done 25,000 words, and an agent and a publisher will just be like, well, where's the rest? Yeah.
1: <laughs> so... I want to come on to some, some specific aspects of, or dimensions of writing now. People talk a lot about characters and creating characters. Have you got any advice at all for for writers on how you can create characters that people will care about?
2: I think making them easy to empathise with, even if they're morally grey, ambiguous characters, which in fantasy seems to happen quite regularly. Mm. Um, it certainly does. Yeah. yeah thinking of Joe Joe Come
1: Oh well so was I when you said that. <laughs> yes.
2: But I think you need to you still need to be engaged with that character and understand the reasonings behind their actions and, and, and be able to sort of empathize with what they're doing. Not necessarily agree with it but certainly empathize with it. I think they need to be original and different so it's not necessarily seeing yourself on page but it's saying something, it's somebody different and imagining how you would react in their position, which I think is slightly different when it comes to sort of YA, where I think teenage readers a lot of the time do put themselves into that character shoes completely. And I think it's, again, it's, it's sort of difficult to give advice about writing characters. It would very much depend again on what type of book they're writing. Sure.
1: So perhaps it is bound up a little bit with plot and setting and the, the kind of the context in which the characters
2: exist. Yeah, definitely. Your, your characters have to fit your novel. And, and I think... Yeah, just making them as interesting. The dialogue, I think, is very important as well. I mean, that's something that I think sort of readers. Not readers that writers can fall down on sometimes is making the dialogue too stilted and too formulaic. It does have to have a nice flow. It does have to. The dialogue is something you would want to absorb from the story without, you know, sort of being picked up too much and having to concentrate on it.
1: Okay, and I wanted to ask you as well a little bit about the oldest piece of advice and probably the first piece of advice that writers ever get, or often the first piece, which is like showing, not telling. Now, some people listen to this and go, oh, show, not tell again. Here we go. Uh, but it it's it, it's interesting how uh these days because it's talked about it so much, you get nuances. Because some people say, "Oh, you got to do a bit of telling." Actually, you do a little bit of showing and a bit of telling, and all of the, these kind of things. Where are you at? What's your views on on showing not telling? I mean, is it?
2: I think it's, it is still true, and I used to um, I used to come up against that with debut authors frequently. So there are there are certain mistakes I think debut authors can make, and that is that is overwriting, and that is putting too many ideas into the first book. So I think they'll get so excited about the fact, you know, that they yeah. that they might get a publication deal, that they just hide all their ideas in and don't sort of spread them out. And I think, yeah. you know, that is something that needs to be looked at. And that's where sort of the show and tell comes in as well, is that I think you can do gradual world building. And world building and fantasy okay. obviously are key. But you can't do info dump. So I give three pages about, you know, sort of... Mm. The architecture of a particular building well that's the info dump you don't you don't need that and that's just as important as showing and telling it's it's quite difficult to define <laughs> especially yeah I mean, I've gone back and I've it sort of said to new authors all the time, show, don't tell. I think there, there are ways you can do it. Doing it through dialogue is a good way. So you don't necessarily have huge chunks of he did this, he went there, he did that, he turned, he lifted his hand. He, You know, I mean, that's, that's just too much. It's just too much information and it, it pulls the reader out of the story. But you can have maybe one line of that and then a bit of dialogue that gives away some of the plot as well rather than having it all down on page. So there are certain trick that you can use to turn it from one thing into another
1: okay um we come back to science fiction and fantasy in general now there's a lot of things happening with science fiction and fantasy at the moment what do you think are the trends that gain your attention in in either or both of those genres at the moment what are the things that you're looking at oh that's interesting i'm I'm kind of drawn to that
2: i really like crossover and, and books that sort of start off in one way and then take you off in a totally different direction or have a bit of a twist to them. So um, I suppose some people would call it science fiction light, which I really resent. It's <laughs> just, just insulting. I, I, I do, but I do like that. I think it's something that engages a wider readership and encourages them to pick up a book that they wouldn't necessarily have traditionally picked up is just so important for the genre because if they pick that up, then there's a potential for them to go and pick other things up. Hmm. And, you know, authors who have done that really well, I mean, China crosses boundaries. Yes. Left, right and center. Oh, yeah,
1: he just he just goes his own sweet way all over the place, doesn't he, really?
2: Neil Gaiman does the same thing. Um, yes. You know, Lauren Buquez, has done some really interesting stuff. Sarah Lot, you know, there, there are a bunch of authors out there. Um, Seth Patrick did it as well with The Returns, who are sort of challenging what the traditional tropes of genre are. Twisting them and doing something slightly different with them engages either the literary audience or the more sort of commercial audience yeah. and brings the new readership in. And I, and I think that fresh blood is actually no bad thing.
1: Okay, and uh, conversely, are there things... Uh, within either genre that you think, all right, enough of that already. I don't want to see any more. I don't want to see any more of whatever it is, you know, boy wizards, zombies, whatever.
2: <laughs> says the girl who took on The Walking Dead. Yeah, probably not. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Yeah, no zombies, you know, well, M.R. Carey did it very nicely, so, I'm not, you know, I wouldn't knock it. No,
1: no, maybe, maybe there's life, no, no pun intended, <laughs> sorry, but, yeah, maybe it's still got some traction, zombies, I don't know.
2: Yeah, I, I think, yeah, I mean, to be honest, yeah, zombies, I think, have probably had their day. Horror, unfortunately, you know, much as I absolutely adore it, and I'm a huge horror fan, it's mm. such a small part of the marketplace that I think it has to, again, have something that will... Cross over that particular genre rather than stay in that very niche area. Urban fantasy, in terms of a more urban fantasy-stroke mm. paranormal romance, gotta admit, I have never been a fan of. I know there's a readership <laughs> for it. I know there's a market for it, and it's really not me. I just, I, I just don't get it. But no, I, I mean, apart from that, I think. Yeah, this, 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 as I said, it's it's, uh, it's all subjective. So for me, it's, it's crossover, it's people doing something slightly different. I still love epic fantasy and and fantasy with Grimdark characters. The Market is still loving it as well. So I want to
1: talk to you a little bit as well about self-publishing and, uh, again, a massive topic uh, in publishing in general. Do, do you think some authors should consider self-publishing? Is there a place for it? And-
2: is a place for it. I mean, I know, you know, some authors have done incredibly well through through self-publishing, but I would also say, you know, be wary. Don't think that you're automatically going to be a, a huge bestseller and sell billions of copies um, through self-publishing. It's It's got exactly the same sort of um, difficulties that, that traditional publishing has. I would say the thing with self-publishing is you are narrowing your market. You have basically only got a couple of retailers, or maybe only one <laughs> that you're actually been able to sell through. Whereas traditional publishing, you do have um, a much wider, a much wider remit to, you know, sort of get a bigger audience because you have the traditional retailers as well as online retailers. It's it's really a matter of choice, you know. If you've been turned down by every traditional publisher going and you are absolutely desperate to get your book published and you think there is traction there for an audience, then then do it. You, you really haven't got that much to lose. So, no, I think, that, I think there is a marketplace. And as I said, some, some authors do it absolutely fabulously and think, you know, that's for them. They wouldn't dream of going with a traditional publisher. And I know other authors who have self-published. Um, Amanda Hawking, and and Blake Crouch actually, who both self published as well, and then came to traditional publishing because actually, you know, they they just wanted a, a support team behind them and a wider reach. I
1: guess for me that would, if I was having that debate, that would be the kind of principal thing, which is obviously if you self publish, then you are the publisher and the marketer and the salesperson and the writer and everything. Uh, whereas in fact, if you if you are working with a publisher, you've got a whole team of experts. Who, as, as you kind of talked about this earlier, there is a team on your side who are going to work with you.
2: There is a team, and I think people underappreciate actually how much work goes into publishing a book. I mean, I I used to get so frustrated with sort of reviews saying, oh, they've just slapped a cover on, oh, they haven't done any editing on it, oh, look at this, and you would just think this has taken 18 months to get out there. You know, I mean, you know, when an author delivers a book, it's usually 18, you know, a good sort of 18 to 12 months before publication. I think what fits you know, for some people it doesn't necessarily fit the for the other and you know, true. some self published authors may not have the patience to to wait for their book to be out. They may not feel the necessity for an entire team behind them. They may feel comfortable doing it on their own. Yeah,
1: and I know there are some some do. I mean I could think of one or two self publishers who yeah, they wouldn't dream of waiting 18 months to get their book out. And actually, they do this get-up-and-go, and they go for it. And that's great for them. But the Other authors, they just couldn't do it. I suppose you've just got to know yourself, haven't you? You've got to know what you, what you want and what you're good at. So at the beginning of this conversation, we said that after 15 years in uh, big commercial publishing houses, you're now working on your own. So I presume you are, you're now self-employed.
2: I am, and my boss is a real pain in the arse. <laughs> makes me work weekends and evenings. Oh, no. Just give me a
1: break. <laughs> uh, yeah. No, I but um, tell us what you do. Tell, tell us a little bit about your work now, Julie. What do you, what do, you do and what can you do uh, for people who are listening to this who maybe, you know, they've got their first draft and they think it's brilliant and they're really passionate about it and they've worked on it, but they, uh, you know, they've shown it to their friends and beta readers, but actually they now need some professional assistance if they're really going to take it on to the next level.
2: Well, so what I'm doing at the moment is something of a, a bit of a dual role. So I've got the agent hat on one side and then the freelancer on, on the other. And uh, the plan is to do full-time agent as soon as I have a, a, a decent client list in place. At the moment, I'm also doing yeah freelance work, which I'm working for publishers, doing structural editing. I'm still working on a lot of my authors that I worked on at Pam Macmillan. And then I've got the script doctor side as well, where people are sending me in their manuscripts because they want either advice or they want a full structural report and And it would depend, you know, sort of to what level of editorial feedback that they would be happy and comfortable to receive as to what kind of reports I would consider doing for them. The
1: project I'm working on now, I guess I might come to you and say, "I've, I've written the manuscripts, I've finished it, I've particularly worked hard on the first three chapters, there's my, there are they, there's my synopsis. What do I do to get this thing to the point where an agent would take it or a publisher would take it?
2: Well, what I recommend for most people who are sort of looking for an agent opinion is to send it to me as an agent. <laughs> and what I will do is I will, I will take a look at it and say whether it's for me or not. And if they will then want to come back and say, well, what can I do to make it better? I can, I can offer them feedback. And that would be feedback from, um, because that would not necessarily be me saying, do this work and I'd be interested in taking it on because from that perspective, If I feel this work needs doing on it and I'm interested in taking it on, I will take it on and I will do the work. That's part of my role as an agent, just to sit down and do those big edits on on my clients. Oh, okay. I mean, how I work is I get them to send it to me as an agent first. And then, you know, if I'm I'm not interested, then I will be able to give them – first of all, I'll be able to give them feedback. Why? I mean, my rejection letters, I always try and give constructive criticism about what I've liked and what I haven't liked as much. And then if they want further feedback because they think, you know, there's still something in there and actually they would like to sort of either resubmit it or submit it to another agent, then I'm, yeah, of course, I'm very happy to sort of give them a a much more in-depth report on it. But yeah, in terms of so the, the, you know, the authors I've taken on, I do full structural and line edits on those in the same way that I would have done when I take on an author for a, for a publishing house. Okay.
1: So if somebody does want to get in touch with you, with your agent hat on or your editing hat on, to, to just uh, ask you to, to, for some help and to do some work for them, how would they contact you?
2: So I've got a, I've got a website online, www.juliechris.co.uk, uh, and I've got, yeah, my, my email address and the submission forms are on there, so that's the best way of getting in contact with me. Please do not approach me via Facebook or Twitter or LinkedIn. <laughs> I very rarely read the emails on LinkedIn, and when it's Twitter and Facebook, then that tends to be, you know, purely for social media other than
1: pitching. Um, okay. I mean, that's that's sensible, isn't it? And that's that's good to know. So you, you're you at juliecrisp.co.uk and if people go there, they can see the services you yeah. offer. Uh, they can read your blog. They can get in touch with you. as a contact. I'm just looking at your website now.
2: Yeah, they can see my testimonials. Um, yeah, you know. and you've
1: worked with some great authors. I, have, I mean, I know I've said this already, but I'm just looking at these these guys, you know, Anne Cleves, Peter F. Hamilton, Charlie Mayville. I'm thinking I just need to get my, my manuscript finished so I can send it to you at the moment, frankly. <laughs> yeah, I
2: do miss them. Love those
1: guys. So um, we're coming towards the end of our conversation. Is there... Anything else that you would want to say to people listening to this by way of advice to aspiring writers or any other comment or any sort of pearls of wisdom that you can give us before we finish?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think I'd say to to sort of writers in general, you know, don't think that we don't appreciate, as both agents and editors, actually how difficult it is to sit down and write a book. In fact, you know, I would never be able to do it, so I have the utmost respect for anybody who does. It can be incredibly discouraging to get those rejection letters from agents but as i said it's you know it's a very subjective thing what one agent might not like another might do so you know don't give up just just keep at it because you know hopefully it will happen at some stage
1: okay well that's a that's a very optimistic and encouraging and hopeful way to finish i think so we'll we'll leave it at that julie thank you very much for your time uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you and um, i've learned a lot of stuff so just to close in, um, if people want to get in touch with you. It's www.juliecrisp. That's J-U-L-I-E-C-R-I-S-P. Co. Uk. Yes. Okay. Thanks very much for your time.
2: No, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.